Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things we can do for people and the planet. My name is Kevin Folta. I'm your podcast host. And today we're going to tackle an important issue that has really brought up a lot of questions recently for me and for many other people. It's about the question of meta-analyses. Now, on the podcast, I like to really connect you with science that is new and exciting. But how do we know that science is really new and or exciting? In other words, how do we critically evaluate a piece of work and and really go through it to understand if if the claims being made are as significant as the authors may uh, suggest? So this is what I do every day as a scientist, and, and, and it's difficult sometimes even for scientists to be able to hammer through what some of these papers mean, especially when they go through uh, uh, more higher-end statistical machinations, as we see in the area of genomics or epidemiology. But now we have an issue that even clouds the topic more, and that is the concept of meta-analysis. So meta-analysis, well, we'll talk about what that is with our guest. So we're speaking today with Dr. Jeffrey Cabot. He's a senior epidemiologist who has served on the faculty at the Albert Einstein School of Medicine at Stony Brook University, but really has been best recognized as an epidemiologist, practicing epidemiologist, who interprets uh, literature for the public, uh, both in books uh, and in talks. I actually met him uh, when he gave a talk on the uh, evidence of connections of cell phones and cancer and other physical um, problems. So welcome back to the podcast, uh, Jeffrey. Great to be here, Kevin. I really appreciate you making the time to do this because I know that meta-analysis, just, just from your reading your recent work, has been of a major concern. And last year we spoke of the meta-analysis, which uh, seemed to have some rather significant massaging to get the outcome that they did. And so I really wanted to tackle this because this audience is a science-savvy audience, but you know, to be honest, I even get blown away by these meta-analyses and I have a hard time evaluating are they legit? And you know, and and what's, you know, and 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 can I really take something home from this? And when I'm having trouble with this after years of training in statistics, you know, I'm I am a little bit uh, concerned, and so I really hope you can help us drill down on this today. So, uh, first, let's start out with what is a meta-analysis? Meta a meta-analysis is simply a, a process of combining a number of relatively small studies and to evaluate them as one large study. So it's trying to integrate the results of a number of studies. And the reason for that, which we'll get into more, but the reason for that is supposedly the more data you have, the larger number of patients, 
subjects in this in this combined analysis, the more reliable your results should be. So that's that's the basic idea. Well, is this part of the reason why there's so much confusion around different topics like, you know, uh, diet or, you know, uh, meat consumption or alcohol use or how much of this plays into major contemporary questions in society through meta-analysis? Well, the hope would be that meta-analysis would uh, help us to clarify these these persisting problems, like what is the relationship between alcohol and breast cancer, which we epidemiologists have been studying for uh, 35 years uh, at least, uh, actually since the inception of of meta-analysis. And the the problem in a nutshell is that observational studies epidemiologic studies in contrast to randomized controlled clinical trials are subject to uh, to a number of biases and problems so you always have to take that into account in in evaluating these studies and we were asking people about how much they drink and you can get uh, you're not getting the kind of hard, reliable data you'd like. Then, when you combine these studies, you mash them together into one super uh, data set and you analyze the data, um, your, your meta-analysis, the results, are only going to be as good as the data that went into it. So that's, that's the basic, that's the basic problem we're dealing with but then there are other there are other issues that we'll get into well one of the big issues for me is it seems like there are more and more of these coming out all the time and you know what do you think is the basis for that well in fact there's been an absolutely dramatic increase in the number of meta analyses in 1990 there were all of 272 published meta-analyses, and this number has increased uh, dramatically, actually geometrically, uh, over the past three decades. And in 2019, there were 22,000 published meta-analyses. That's an 80-fold increase. What do you think is the reason there are so many more meta-analyses than there used to be? Well, Meta-analysis is considered to be at the apex of different types of data that are different types of studies. It's above uh, randomized clinical trials. So the so I would say that that putting meta-analyses at the apex of the pyramid of different types of studies is is aspirational. It's, there's the hope that the use of this technique could resolve uh, these issues that we've, we spoke about, such as alcohol and breast cancer. Um, but in the real world, and we'll, we'll get into this, 
in the real world, there are many reasons why uh, this aspirational savior, if that could resolve some of these vexing and long-standing questions that we would like to know the answers to, there are reasons why it falls short. Well, I think one of the reasons, just my hypothesis, is that these are relatively, and I don't mean this in a bad way, but relatively easy to do in that you don't need to go capture the primary data. You don't need to do the original experiment or the clinical trials. That these more painstaking, time-consuming, and uh, resource-consuming endeavors are already complete. And now you're taking the outcomes of those and healing several together into one cohesive work. So it's not like you have to start from square one. You're really assembling everything that's there. And in the days of publish and perish, and you know, trying to get more work out there, is there just an incentive for faculty to uh, engage in at least a meta-analysis in their area of, of expertise because it's something that is doable and may provide some in- interesting direction? You, you've, you've really um, hit on a major, uh, a major factor. Uh, they can be done at low cost, uh, just pulling the numbers out of the relevant uh, stack of papers, and um, they get quite uh, they get quite prestigious billing. In other words, they get published in high impact journals, and they get cited a lot. So it really is uh, it adds punch to your your public uh, researchers publications and for that reason it's it's attractive that's one reason why we're seeing this this enormous increase a good example for me is in the glyphosate area just for what it's worth if you have a really good study like the agricultural uh, um, worker study of 54,000 agricultural workers that did not show an association with a given treatment. You know, really good study over many years, um, you know, prospective, all that good stuff over years. And it didn't show an association. Why is it necessary to take on a meta-analysis to that, that then gives completely contrary data to that really excellent study? How necessary is it to take it that one more level? You know something? You're asking the question that would be the first question that I would ask. And in other words, if you step back and you look at the lay of the land, you look at the different studies, and in the the meta-analysis that you're referring to from exactly a year ago uh, from a number of researchers, um, there were five studies. Uh, there, there were a total of six studies that they included. One was the agricultural health study that you just referred to, which I call a Cadillac uh, study in this, in this uh, type of work. And the others were case control studies uh, where uh, the data were of a much poorer quality. So the first question is, Uh, What benefit are you getting from mashing these studies together? And if they had asked that question, they would have uh, avoided making a number of errors. Because because one of the key things 
is that, uh, as, as I said before, the results of a meta-analysis are only as good as the data that go into it. Well, a cardinal rule is that the data, the studies that are being combined should be of more or less the same quality. Otherwise, you're comparing apples to oranges and uh, you're going to be seeing uh, now, now the case control studies just had a number of things which signaled that uh, their estimates of glyphosate related to this type of cancer were really not very credible, and they were not uh, really uh, they were not impressive. They were not re robust results. So, in combining, I don't want to overdo it, but you really you really suggested the point that people do this in a mechanical way and they do it to increase the numbers but but in the rush to do that they may be introducing severe biases so that you'll get a result of the meta analysis which they got namely a 41% increase in risk of this rare cancer, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, for people with any exposure to glyphosate, you're getting a result which may make headlines, and this did, but just looking at it in a uh, common sense way tells you maybe this wasn't a good maybe this wasn't a, uh, a good analysis to undertake in the first place. That doesn't stop people, unfortunately. <laughs> and yeah. we, see, we see numerous, numerous examples. You've got to believe with uh, with these huge numbers of meta-analyses where you get things that are uh, titillating and um, and seem to offer you something. But if you look, looked at it critically, you'd really draw back and say, wait a minute. Well, I don't want to drill too much on this one study. If, you, yeah. if people are really interested in in Dr. Cabot's analysis, uh, go back to episode 174 of this series where we discussed this in detail. But, uh, but just to kind of synthesize your point on this, like you say that you have the Cadillac of studies and then you, you compare it with four Kias of studies. You go a uh, Cadillac and four Kias and your analysis says cars cost $18,000. It doesn't tell you that the, the the best one, or in this case, you know, is not eighteen thousand dollars. So it kind of takes away from the strongest value of the best quality instrument when you combine it with these lower quality instruments that don't have the same statistical weight and the same power that uh, the really good study did. So, so the, you know, just to kind of resynthesize all of that for for the listener, because uh, I know this is a really complicated um, uh, mess of an area. So, you know, with that in mind, how valid are most meta-analyses? One assessment by uh, a very well-regarded uh, researcher at Stanford, uh, who's a tremendous powerhouse, and he specializes in research on research, that is looking at how good are the studies that we're basing medical care or regulation of toxic chemicals, how good are the studies, uh, and uh, how do we separate 
the really the really serious studies, the really solid studies from the chaff, uh, uh, the, a lot of which is is cranked out in the world of publisher parish. And and this uh, this meta analyst uh, John Ioannidis uh, of Stanford uh, arrived at the the conclusion after reviewing a huge amount of of data is that most analyses most meta analyses are unnecessary misleading and conflicted and he went on to estimate that perhaps only about 3% are decent and and necessary so <laughs> so that's a very that's a very um severe judgment but it's it's backed up. This technique offers the researcher a lot of opportunities to influence the outcome of the analysis. And what do I mean by that? Well, the, the whole analysis depends on which studies you include. And different people, different researchers will have different ideas about which are the relevant studies or which are, are the uh, highest quality studies. And, and that will influence their results. So we have this phenomenon of dueling meta-analyses. And that means that different researchers uh, examining, conducting a meta-analysis on the same question uh, will come up with totally opposite results. And examples of this is the question of violent video games and violent behavior or mass shootings. Are they related? Does playing video, violent video games, does that lead someone to be more violent in the real world? And this, this, this is one example. This has been going on for 20 or 30 years. And there are different camps and they, they fight and they uh, publish and they say, no, your, your defense of your meta-analysis doesn't stand up. And uh, so this is, a, this is an example of, of the problem. And similar things could be said about Questions like the effectiveness of antidepressants, which where you're in the area of clinical medicine. Well, because there are vested interests, pharmaceutical, there's a huge, huge uh, stake in the effectiveness of antidepressants. You have schools that are at odds with, with each other. And so, so there are problems with the data and then there's there are conflicts of interests uh, among researchers that can that can influence what they consider a good study and what result they think is most uh, is most credible. All right. Let's say you have dueling meta analyses where you have one which is supportive of a given concept, another one which absolutely refutes it that usually only one of them makes it to the media and it's the one that is the most inflammatory and sensational and the one which uh, has the most impact on changing the way people think about you know a topic of you know we we all know food and diet ones you know the glyphosate one is the best example for me because it was you ended up being used in a court of law in a major decision and uh, all other ones 
pretty much out the window. So, uh, you know, how how does um, someone who's in the general public begin to understand or question, you know, what is real and what isn't when it comes to a meta analysis? That that's a fantastic point. Um, that that your your first point that uh, certain types of results get the attention and others are totally ignored because if you if you find hey in fact the best studies do not show any signal that uh, Roundup glyphosate is a cause of cancer then people uh, that doesn't get traction what gets traction is. Uh, you know, if you've sprayed Roundup in your garden, uh, my God, you're 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 uh, more likely to get cancer. And look at these poor guys who are uh, who are in uh, litigants who are bringing uh, cases in uh, California at the moment. But there are I don't know there are more than thirty thousand cases uh, around around the issue of Roundup, uh, one tends to say, well, something must have caused it and they must have evidence that it's, that it's glyphosate. This is, this is a huge, huge problem, especially where there's huge amounts of money in tort cases and vested interests and a huge, huge problem. Um, so how is the, your question, your second question, how is a, the average person to decide um, is really is really tough, uh, especially since the media very often goes along. Then I don't want to blame the media for uh, as the cause of the problem, but but journalists don't have time to, <laughs> the way we scientists do to dig in and spend hours and hours sifting through the data and saying well this is really not very impressive on the one hand and here here's what the good studies have to say so i would say i would say that um there are uh outfits uh like uh, talking biotech uh, podcast like uh, the Genetic Literacy Project, like the National Cancer Institute, and others like the American Council on Science and Health that by and large are very, very good arbiters of what is the quality and what is the consistency of the science on on these questions. Uh, those are some good hints. I know that another confounding factor frequently are uh, university communications offices who, because their report comes out that has a certain leaning, they too aren't immune from the bias and their big interest is in promoting the university and the work that comes from its faculty and may tend to even over-exaggerate beyond what the researchers uh, once said, and that's what goes out in the press release, and ultimately ends up changing the way it's reported by the media. And I've seen a few cases of that over the years, and it seems like it's only getting worse. So uh, let's step off there. Um, we're speaking with Dr. Jeffrey Cabot, previously on the faculty of the Albert Einstein School of Medicine and Stony Brook University. He's a senior epidemiologist who spends a lot of time connecting with the public about critical issues in epidemiology and, and interpretation of claims. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast. We'll be back in just a minute. 
Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. This week at 11 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time, you can join Dr. Folta in online lessons for children, first through sixth grade. He'll cover topics like viruses, DNA, where did cows come from, what are pesticides, and many other exciting topics. That's over on Fulta's professional Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash KM Fulta again every day except weekends at 11 a.m. You also can hear him discuss the news of the week with Cameron English over on the Genetic Literacy Project Science Facts and Fallacies podcast. They cover the hot stories, the breaking news, and break down the information and add their enlightening and sometimes interesting commentary. All of the expanded dedication to public communication is made possible because of your support on Patreon. Thanks for helping there, and thanks for sharing the stories of science with others. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech Podcast. We're speaking with Dr. Jeffrey Cabot. He's a senior epidemiologist who we're speaking about meta-analyses, what they are, why they're problematic, and maybe some ways we can improve them. Uh, One of the trends that we've seen over the last 20 years is that a lot of them are coming out of China. And so what can you tell us about those meta-analyses and that particular trend? Actually, more than a third of meta-analyses are from from China and this picked up in the early 2000s and and has accelerated and there there's a strong impetus for China to become a major power in biomedical research. Chinese scientists have very very strong incentive to publish in English and to publish papers that are going to have an impact this has been a, a big contributor to the what's been referred to as an epidemic uh, in publishing of the epidemic growth of the publication of meta-analyses. And it, you're right. I mean, I've heard so much about scientists who are actually, this is a financial incentive that mm-hmm. if you publish in a high-impact journal or uh, it gets a lot of citation, that uh, individual scientists are rewarded with non-trivial amounts of money. And so that could be maybe kind of part of this too, because we're you're seeing these just this huge surge in this. But financial conflicts of interest aren't just in uh, maybe you know direct finances like that to a professor to publish. You know where do we see other potential conflicts of interest, perhaps maybe influencing uh, meta-analysis? Well, I referred to uh, the the whole issue of antidepressants. Uh, and their effectiveness and suicide uh, associated with antidepressant use. And there, as you can imagine, industry has very strong interest. Uh, industry is behind a lot of meta-analyses or researchers who get money from uh, pharmaceutical companies. And so, so that's, a, that's a glaring that's a or researchers who have consulted in the past. That's a glaring interest uh, example. Sorry of c- 
conflict of interest. But there are other uh, subtler ones. Let's say it's exposure to cell phones and brain cancer. There is a tendency, because scientists are human, to want to, to, want to bear out your hypothesis that there's something there. In other words, when people spend 10 years of their life researching uh, a question, uh, they can have a stake in there being something there. So if you conduct a meta-analysis, unless you are absolutely, you divorce your judgment about the quality of the studies from your personal uh, inclination to, uh, to your gut feeling that there must be something there, that, then that leads, I think that kind of, uh, that kind of phenomenon is, is present in, and this, you mentioned diet and cancer. In diet and cancer, we have these violently opposed camps like the uh, low-carb, high-fat camp uh, versus the um, the low-fat, uh, high-carb camp. And so there, there are lots of, there. if you read in that area, there's lots of dueling points of view and lots of deep uh, belief, uh, belief that uh, in spite of the limitations of dietary studies, which are uh, uh, which are a fact of life, people want to believe that they're on the track to uh, getting at the truth. Uh, and um, so, so there, there are meta-analyses in that area. And so I think you see how these things can be colored, they can be influenced by scientists, um, by their uh, investment in a question. Yeah, and, and I'll bring up a point in how this can happen in a second, but, you know, the one thing that's a little troubling when I listen to you talk about this is that this is what people always say about us, about like you and me, yeah. <laughs> us, you yeah. know, they'll say, well, he has a vested interest in seeing how this comes out. He, he certainly, and what's so funny about that, and, you know, just an important point to make is that when you train in science and you're well-trained in science, that to me, when I test a hypothesis and the data come out contrary to what I originally hypothesized, that's a great answer. And what it's told me over the years is that I just underthought the process and that underthought the question. And that when I go back and do more experiments, that the real answer is much more interesting than I could have originally thought. And so to me, I'm very happy with data that uh, refute the, the hypothesis or, are, or do not support the hypothesis because they usually give me good direction in a better line of research. And I kind of made a career of that, um, you know, making a mistake on my first guess only to find out it was something much better. But when you're talking about these meta-analyses, especially when there are interests on the line, one of the things that I frequently see when I look at them is you look at the methods and they say, how did we decide which data went into the meta-analysis? Which papers did we consider? And you see statements like, we eliminated anything with a sample size smaller than this, or eliminated anything that had an outcome that said this. So there's rather arbitrary points 
of what to include and what not to include that you could see how a bias in this would very easily select for inclusion or elimination of work primary research going into the meta-analysis that would automatically skew the outcome. And how prevalent do you think that is? I think I think it's very prevalent. Uh, it can be subtle. And re- remember, here, here's another point. Meta-analysis is mostly used, if not exclusively used, when we're dealing with subtle effects, when we're dealing with weakish risk factors. Um, You don't need to conduct a meta-analysis of all the studies on smoking to show that smoking is a cause, is so strongly associated with lung cancer. The there, you're dealing with associations that, depending on how, uh, what type of smoker a person is, a smoker of a pack a day, of two packs a day, of three packs a day, you get risks that are tenfold, twentyfold, thirtyfold, uh, and and higher. Okay, and uh, you don't need you don't need meta analysis to tell you that. Uh, smoking is associated with with lung cancer because the effect is so strong and it's seen in um, in so many different studies in different places. So so when you're dealing with these subtle these subtle or weak associations, that's precisely where the studies are are, are weaker and they have less ability to really isolate. Or pin down the the effect that you're looking at, such as alcohol and breast cancer, or uh, glyphosate and uh, and cancer, or cell phones and cancer. And so, by conducting a meta analysis, what are you doing? You're using sort of iffy, weakish studies, and you're going to pull in studies where people have found have found something. Okay, like there's a really good example is the studies of cell phone use. Um, And there's one group in Sweden that whether they're looking at pesticides or whether they're looking at cell phones or whether they're looking at other chemicals, they, they tend to come up with risks that are sort of impressive, like threefold relative risks. And that group in Sweden has been judged to be sort of an outlier. Their data just are not uh, compatible with all of the other studies done all over the world on on these questions. And so if you conduct a meta-analysis and you include those studies, what are you going to do? You're going to get a result that's pulled up, that's pulled up by those outlier studies. Commentators have said, you know, you can get any result that you want to get from a a meta-analysis. When is meta-analysis most applicable and legitimate and gives us really good information? I I think there are two two situations in which it can be useful if used judiciously. One is for researchers. If you look at studies and you look at the whole 
topography, look at the whole terrain, all the different studies, and then you and you ask yourself, well, which are the best ones? You you can then you can then identify the highest quality studies, and you can see how consistent they are, or or is there any way to explain why you see differences if they're if they're all good studies and done in the same way? <clears throat> presumably, they would uh, show the same thing. So you can interrogate the data to learn something about how how good a job you're doing. It's exactly what you were talking about earlier about your training as as a scientist. <clears throat> That's one use. So if if done in a even-handed way, critical way, you can learn something from conducting a meta-analysis. But that's for researchers. There, there's, there are meta-analyses that could be of interest to, um, to the general public. And I'll give just one example. <clears throat> um, this researcher, whom I've referred to out at Stanford, did has done many different analyses in all you know, depression, on uh, psychoanalysis, on contaminants in the environment, on all sorts of issues, on diet, uh, collaborating with all sorts of different specialists who want to collaborate with him to do a superior job of, of um, interrogating the data, of looking at what the data have to tell us. And one of the studies that he published looked at this. <clears throat> We all hear about physical activity is good for you. And there's been a longstanding question, well, does physical activity uh, protect against breast cancer, for example? There's some evidence that it does. Uh, does it protect against other cancers? So this researcher did a global meta-analysis looking at all of the studies in in uh, you know, millions of people looking at all of the studies that examined the effects of physical activity on any cancer. <clears throat> and what they came up with was that for most cancers, one can't really make the statement that physical activity is protective, but there were two cancers and they happened to be two of the most common cancers, there were two cancers for which there did appear to be a protective effect. And those were breast cancer and colorectal cancer, two incredibly uh, you know, prominent cancers in, in, in the modern world, in the US and elsewhere. Uh, so that's an example of, I think that's worthwhile, that's useful information for the public to know. That here, you know, we know that being physically active is good for the heart. We know that it's good for the bones. And now we know uh, that, um, that there's a decent bet that um, physical activity may be protective to some degree uh, against two major cancers. Well, see, that's the perfect example of how this could be, be used appropriately. And is there any, I know that uh, Ioannidis has made some suggestions about how 
these things can get better going forward. So can you tell us a little bit about how how can the scientific community as editors and reviewers and as you know referees of this kind of work, how can we raise the bar so that this kind of information is more helpful? Okay. Well, first of all, uh, Ioannidis's major idea is that we should improve the quality of research. And as in my reading on meta-analysis, I come back to, well, uh, meta-analysis can only be as good as the studies that, that make it up. Um, what Enidas comes down to is saying that forget about these moot, these flashing meta-analyses and these studies that we have in the past, he said, in the future, the ideal is not going to be achieved, but it's important to hold out an ideal. The ideal would be for researchers with an interest in a question, alcohol and breast cancer, whatever, to uh, communicate together and to set up criteria for the different groups could conduct their studies but they need to communicate and they need to agree on what is an adequate measurement. Uh, how do you measure alcohol intake? Uh, what population should you use? How do you do the best studies you can do? And if you do that prospectively, you start from scratch and say, we're going to crack this issue by doing superior, by doing higher quality studies, then once you've conducted those studies, you, they could be combined in a meta-analysis and the researchers from different camps with different points of view would communicate, they would analyze the data, they would argue, and you would come up with a much superior, a greatly superior product because it would have the benefit of this give and take and everyone would have a stake in, uh, in a high quality meta-analysis. Now, um, that's, uh, there are so many incentives that work against that, namely time and, and money. So we're going to continue to see, uh, we're going to continue to see the kinds of meta-analyses, some of reasonable quality, but probably a small minority, and most of them, things that need to be taken with uh, many grains of salt. Um, but you mentioned editors and, and reviewers need to, be, need to be more critical of what gets published. And let me, let me tell you, a colleague of mine wrote to the editors of the journal that published the 2019 meta-analysis the poor meta-analysis, and wrote and, and pointed out some of the problems and uh, never, got, never got an answer uh, from the journal. So this, this is, you know, this is uh, symptomatic of something, and it's not a lone, lone story. People dig in their heels. People are really protective of their results. And uh, so, but ideally, we 
we'll focus we'll focus on the people who are trying to improve the quality of of research and maybe that's always going to be a minority but hopefully that will carry that will carry more weight and and let me let, let me add I know I'm saying a lot about let me add that in January the US EPA re reanalyzed in a very thoughtful carefully done meta analysis of the, of the six studies that I referred to the Cadillac study and the the five Kia studies and lo and behold what they came up with was uh that there was not, there was no 41% increase uh there was uh, a 14% increase, which was not statistically significant. In other words, they came out and said there is no, we, we uh, stand by our earlier determination with this more detailed meta-analysis that there's no, there's no association between glyphosate and, um, and cancer. Well, that's really good advice, the idea of how we could make these things be better instruments and more successful. But we're in an age of predatory publishing, and how much of uh, low-quality predatory research gets into meta-analyses to cloud those results, and then how many meta-analyses are published in those low-quality journals? I don't. I haven't actually looked at that. That's a very good question. Um, but... Look, I think that uh, definitely uh, some papers that uh, may qualify uh, that are published in predatory journals or so-called uh, pay-for-play pay journals are uh, getting into the data sets that are being used. And it wouldn't surprise me that um, that these journals are publishing their own meta-analyses because with these numbers of papers coming out, they've got to be published somewhere. Um, so it, it, is a, it is a problem. Yeah, it's a really important point. And so if you had to give some advice to the average consumer of science, like just, you know, someone who maybe is just a science enthusiast or, or even just an average consumer, what advice would you give in terms of how much weight they put into a meta-analysis? Okay. Well, it depends. It depends on the topic and it depends on... Uh, it's hard, hard to generalize because in some fields we know much more than in in other fields. So one has to be wary of the lone study that comes along, or even the lone meta-analysis that comes along. Um, and again, I would I would uh, suggest that one go to websites or uh, books or publications that that devote their time, that put in a lot of effort to come up with a, a critical assessment of what is what is worth paying attention to. How well does this stand up? So I I mentioned some of those those websites before because there are so many questions out there. There's so many uh, 
issues dancing around that we'd like to know the answer to. And on many of them, uh, many of them, it's probably not worth uh, worrying about them. Uh, but, but where there is some solid information, you will get that from the National Cancer Institute, the Genetic Literacy Project, and so, and so on, uh, because they really, the, these people are, feel an obligation to, uh, provide, to provide an interpretation of, of what's important and to be critical about the, late, the latest news stories, like the American Council on Science and Health does, uh, they're indefatigable in uh, looking at the latest news stories every day and making, making sense of them or really debunking them where they, uh, there's, nothing, there's nothing to back it up. Well, that's really good advice. So really the best the best advice might be then for people interested in these kinds of topics to identify who you trust for that information and then pay attention to their synthesis um, when it comes to how much weight we put in a meta-analysis. So maybe in a nutshell. But if people wanted to learn more about you and uh, what you do or maybe follow you for good information on these topics, how would they do that? Okay. My website is simply uh, jeffreycabot.com. So Jeffrey spelled the English way, G-E-O-F-F-R-E-Y, and last name K-A-B-A-T, as all one word. So jeffreycabot.com. And that has all of my articles and the latest articles uh, featured and interviews and so forth. I'm also on Twitter at, at Geo, uh, Geo Cabot, or one word, at Twitter. And there's an Amazon page for my books. And, um, and that is if you type in Amazon.com and, and Jeffrey Cabot, it'll come up. It's also on, it's also, uh, under books on my on my website, so that's easy to find. And I might mention that um, they're putting out a paperback edition of my latest book, Getting Risk Right, uh, which has gotten some ver- very nice reviews, which are also on on the website. And so the paperback edition is just coming out this this week. So that's that's uh, very nice. Maybe it'll rekindle. Uh, interest in in the book. So <laughs> well, I have basically it. I have some ideas for your next book. Could okay. you do one? Could you do one called Meta Meta? Do a retrospective analysis of the claims that were made in meta analyses, because so many of these things have resolved and have played out either with the addition of new data or the addition of time. And so all the all of the like for instance the analyses that said connections between brain cancer and cell phones if that was true i don't think you would have a person walking around who would not have brain cancer so i, I do think it's maybe you know worth a, a, some time to go back and reevaluate those but <laughs> so what do you think it's a good idea i think it's a good idea and i'm always uh you know, working on trying to come up with an idea that that i really think um is uh has the right you know has the right 
um, saliency and that is something I would want to do and not not be um, not be a too too uh, too uh, hard on the reader in terms and hard on me in terms of the amount of data that it's uh, that it's conveying. Yeah, well, if you need a co-author on that one, let me know because that's a that's a it's a neat idea, and I think would have a lot of traction because for these days when we get sucked into inflammatory claims and news sensationalism. And we forget about the claims that were made even last week, let alone 20 years ago. That's and a great point. That's a yeah. great point. Because why Why is that? Because the news is forward-looking. And because scientists, well, if your work didn't pan out on brain cancer, there's always something new and exciting, or cell phones, there's always something new to um, latch on to. And one just moves on. And, you know, you sculpt... You sculpt your new grant proposal to try to to try to uh, get attention and get funding, and so that's so nobody nobody tends to look back. And I've made that point, and uh, and that's that's what I did in in my two books. Look back and say how how well did we do with yeah. the, with these issues that got so much attention and so much money from the government. Yeah, the dumpster of time is filled with tinfoil hats. Well, thank you very much for joining me. And you know, thank you, uh, thank you, listeners, again, for all of your support, whether it's through social media and sharing these episodes, telling friends, or even your support on Patreon. It's allowed us to have, have a full-time producer and uh, really start to push this uh, concept of Talking Biotech through more channels. And uh, look forward to increasing our listenership and more people to share these discussions. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll talk to you again next week. The Talking Biotech Podcast presents the personal views of Dr. Kevin Falta and its guests. These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. Comment on today's episode on the Talking Biotech Facebook page. Send comments and suggestions to kevinfolta at gmail.com. And remember, tell a friend, write a review, or float us a little love over on the Patreons. Your support will directly translate into this podcast and broadening science education efforts everywhere. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.